Those who are unsaved are hostile towards God. You know what that means? That when somebody says to you, I've always loved God, they're not telling you the truth. They've not loved God. Not the God of Scripture. Not the the true God. They may have loved a God they created in their own minds, but not the God of the Bible. And not only that, he tells us not only were we hostile towards God, but we didn't subject ourselves to the law of God. We never obeyed him. We did whatever we wanted to do. And we're not even able to do it before we were saved. Even if we wanted to, we're not able to do it. We don't have the power to do it and we don't want to do it anyway. You see, it's only when we come to Christ for salvation are we reconciled to God and we become his friend. Otherwise, folks, every unsaved person is at war with God. verse by verse with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. We have some heavy truth coming our way today on verse by verse, but first let me mention that Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida is where Pastor Steve preaches regularly, and I've been asked to invite you to attend some Sunday if you are ever in the Clearwater area. As I said, we have some heavy words coming our way today in our series, Words Have Meaning. Pastor Steve is teaching from Matthew chapter 12. But today we're going to start with Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. In our last broadcast, we heard that there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. Paul said it another way in Romans chapter 5. He said that we were enemies of God until we were reconciled through the death of Jesus Christ. Let's pay close attention today because there are several important truths that will help us in sharing the gospel. Here is Pastor Steve. Notice Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, he means before you were converted, you were enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. He's telling us that everyone who has ever come to faith in Christ and been reconciled was, first of all, an enemy of God. Now, that's a heavy truth. We were all enemies, regardless of a person's nice personality. Maybe they have a tenderness of heart. Maybe they're just, you know, sweet people. They are still enemies of God if they're not converted. All of us were enemies of God. In fact, more than than enemies, we were hostile. Romans chapter 8 and then verse 7. Paul writes, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are unsaved are hostile towards God. You know what that means? That when somebody says to you, I've always loved God, they're not telling you the truth. They've not loved God. Not the God of Scripture. Not the the true God. They may have loved a God they created in their own minds, but not the God of the Bible. And not only that, he tells us not only were we hostile towards God, but we didn't subject ourselves to the law of God. We never obeyed him. We did whatever we wanted to do. And we're not even able to do it before we were saved. Even if we wanted to, we're not able to do it. We don't have the power to do it and we don't want to do it anyway. You see, it's only when we come to Christ for salvation are we reconciled to God and we become 
his friend. Otherwise, folks, every unsaved person is at war with God, living in rebellion to his standards, in rebellion to his commands, walking after the lusts of their own flesh. And that's why Jesus that day said to the crowd, you cannot remain neutral towards me. Either you must follow me in submission to my authority as your Lord and King, or you remain against me a hostile sinner bent on following the dictates of your own fleshly desires. And if those in the crowd of undecided, unconverted people who witness Christ casting out a demon from that man, if they refuse to become his followers, then not only would they still be opposed to him, but they would also be in danger of ending up like those openly hostile Pharisees who, watch this, in their rejection of Christ had put themselves in the place of never being able to experience God's forgiveness. That's the great danger. Not only would they be opposed to him, but they'd be so hostile to him that they could never be saved. Notice verse 31. Therefore, based on this, based on the fact that there's no neutrality, you're one way or another, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now these are those most terrifying words I mentioned to you last week that Jesus ever uttered. Because they tell us that there is a sin which he called blasphemy of the Spirit that will not be forgiven by God, which means that a person who commits this sin will be lost forever. Lost forever with no possibility of ever being saved. So it's extremely important that we understand this, right? We have to understand the nature of this particular sin, make sure we never commit it. So what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, we're going to think our way through this. First of all, we need to understand that this particular sin has nothing to do, as many people think it does, has nothing to do with anything like gross immorality or any other form of decadent behavior. That's what many people think. Well, somebody committed suicide or somebody murdered someone else or, or somebody's an adulterer or somebody was uh, drunkard. Or, has nothing to do with that. And I'll show you this. From the context of this verse... Jesus was was specifically telling the Pharisees that they had committed this particular sin. And yet the Pharisees were not guilty of any gross acts of immorality or drunkenness or murder or occult practices. And there may have been some along the lines who did it, but as a, as a group they were not guilty of this. In fact, these men were actually outstanding citizens, the best that Israel had to offer. They were meticulous observers of their externally righteous religion. Yet Jesus said that they had committed a sin that was so serious that it could and would never be forgiven of God. So eliminate in your minds that it was some gross immorality. To highlight how serious this particular sin is, Jesus said that every other sin, and he said in blasphemy, would be forgiven. Meaning, of course, that there was repentance and faith. God does not forgive unless there's repentance and and faith. But he said the blasphemy of the Spirit would not be forgiven. There would not be repentance and faith concerning that. In other words, he's saying every heinous sin imaginable, and I might add every sin unimaginable, including the sin of blasphemy, which means... To intentionally speak against God. That's what it means to blaspheme. To intentionally speak against God. Every sin and blasphemy, Jesus said, will be forgiven. That's good news. The bad news is, except the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In fact, 
The Lord went on to say that even the sin of speaking against him was forgivable. Notice the beginning in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Now, that's a great truth to know because if you were saved later in life, probably everyone in that camp saved later in life has blasphemed God in general and Christ in particular, right? Some of us in this audience have have done that. You may have bitterly railed at God, angry at Him. You may have cursed at Him in your anguish and pain, spoken evil of Him, denounced Him as being cruel and unfair. How dare He he let somebody die in your family? How dare He allow you to be so um, afflicted physically? How dare He take this job from you and you've said and accused Him uh, perhaps of being unfair and cruel and unjust? That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And concerning specifically Jesus Christ, you don't need me to convince you that Christ has been the object of more abusive speech in the history of humanity than anybody else. He's been accused of being, amongst many things, a liar, a sorcerer, a deceiver, an illegitimate child, and even insane. And in recent times, he has been blasphemed as one who's had a secret love affair and marriage with Mary Magdalene. And on and on it goes. Yet Jesus said that all blasphemies against him could and would be forgiven if there was repentance. And you know, there's no better illustration of this truth that a Christ-hating blasphemer could and would be forgiven than the Apostle Paul. who was the, He said he was the chief of sinners. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'd like you to see this because this is important and it ties in with why he could be forgiven but his fellow Pharisees that Jesus spoke to could not and would not. First Timothy chapter 1. In, verse, in verses 12 and 13, Paul says something most significant. He says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, putting me into service. And notice this, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet... I was shown mercy. Now notice this. Why? Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's very important. Paul tells us that his blaspheming was done in ignorance. Since before his conversion, Paul, then known as Saul of Tarsus, really didn't understand the truth about Christ. Know this about Paul. Paul was simply, before his conversion, a self-righteous Pharisee who blasphemed Christ because he was trying to protect the Jewish religion. That's why he did it. That's why he did it. He didn't deliberately, knowing the truth about Jesus, go against him. Even though Paul was wrong, he sincerely thought that he was honoring Judaism and the God of Israel. That was where Paul's heart was. Now, he was wrong. And if he wasn't converted, he would have ended up in hell. But at least Paul said, "I, I didn't deliberately know the truth and reject it. I didn't know it. But watch this, that was not the case with his fellow Pharisees who said that Jesus was the ruler of the demons. They did not act in ignorance. They saw Christ's miracles, they heard his teaching, and yet they deliberately chose to reject him. Now listen very closely. The Pharisees rejected Christ because they had made up their minds not to pay any attention to the Holy Spirit's witness, ongoing witness, as he worked in and through Christ in performing miracles. Remember Jesus said, if I by whom? 
The Spirit of God cast out demons. Even though Jesus was God in human flesh, he ministered in the power of the Spirit of God. It was by the Spirit's power that he cast out demons. And every time he cast out a demon and every time he healed somebody, it was the not only the power of the Holy Spirit, it was the witness of the Holy Spirit, witnessing and testifying and pointing people to Christ, saying, it's him. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's your king. But the Pharisees, who saw so much of this, deliberately chose to ignore the Spirit's witness and work through Christ until they became so hardened and callous to the Spirit's witness that they actually attributed Christ's power to Satan. Remember, these are the same men who in John chapter 11 hear of Lazarus raised from the dead and they said Jesus has to die. I think about that. Somebody's been raised from the dead after three days in a tomb, so much so that the Bible says in that wonderful King James language, he stinketh by this time. And yet, that's all they could think about. They saw this amazing miracle, and all they could think about was killing Christ. That's hardness. I think also in John chapter 9, there was a man who was born blind who Jesus gave sight to. And all they could think about was, it must not be true. Is this really the man born blind? Let's bring his parents in here. Listen, a guy who was born blind has been given sight. And that's all they can think about. Folks, that's hardness of heart. They didn't act in ignorance. They knew exactly what they were doing, but they deliberately chose to reject the evidence. They had made their minds up. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Matthew, explained exactly why the Pharisees could never be forgiven. He wrote, their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there's hope. He writes, the measure, or the message rather, of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, He has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. In other words, the reason the sin against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven is that it is the equivalent, watch this, of rejecting Christ with such finality that no one in this state of mind will ever repent and believe the gospel. That's why the unforgivable sin can never and will never be committed by a Christian. If you've ever feared as a believer that you've committed this, I'm telling you, you haven't. I tell you on the authority of God's word, this is about permanently rejecting Christ. Those who permanently reject Christ will never be forgiven. They've made up their minds already. You've accepted Christ. Let God give you assurance from his word. See, this is the sin of permanently rejecting the Son of God. And those who deliberately refuse to pay attention to the clear promptings and witness provided by the Holy Spirit place themselves in a position where, note this, there's nothing more that God can do for them to convince them of Christ and their need to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is the voice of the Spirit. The voice of the Spirit is the Word of God. If you reject that, what more can God do? You've rejected His means by which He opens your heart to the truth. There's nothing more that even God can do. Because no one can be saved apart from the Holy Spirit's work and witness to your life about Christ. If you reject His work and His witness, there is simply nothing more that God can or will do to bring you to faith in Christ. 
in rejecting the constant witness of the Spirit as he gives enlightenment concerning the Lord and the need to trust him for salvation, a person can come to a point in their life where they have so deliberately refused the Word of God and made up their minds about Christ that they can reach a point of hardness in their hearts where they will never repent and believe in Jesus. Now, where that is in someone's heart, we don't always know. But Jesus knew, and it's clear that the Pharisees had reached that point. How would he know that? Because, listen, the evidence is so clear. The evidence of this type of hardness came out very, very loud when they said, you're satanic, and Jesus said, I know you've reached the point of no return. You'll never repent. Because you've you've seen and heard the witness of the Spirit to you, you continue to reject it. If after seeing all of that, you conclude that I'm satanic, there is no hope for you. There's nothing more that God can show you to convince you. Now, you may have never, you may have never blasphemed the Holy Spirit by claiming that Jesus and his power were satanic. But nevertheless, this is not isolated to the first century. This principle is true today because you can still reach a point in your life where hardness of heart can make you a person who's beyond any hope of salvation. You don't have to go through this exact experience of seeing Jesus in the first century casting out a demon and you say no. You still in principle can harden your heart to the witness of the Spirit. And let me just show you this. Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews is written to just as the title says, to people who were Hebrews, Jewish people, many of which were born again. But some in this Hebrew church were not saved. And the writer knows that, and that's why he gives them some very severe warnings throughout this book, warnings that are too strong for for believers. They are clearly addressed to unbelievers. And he gives them a warning in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which would indicate that some of them were neglecting this salvation. They had heard it, but they were neglecting it. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the Lord first came, proclaimed the gospel, the writer is saying, then the apostles came along and, and they confirmed it. They, they were the Lord's ambassadors. They confirmed it. And then verse 4 says, God also testifying with them, that is the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the apostles came along, they preached the gospel, and God gave them the ability to perform signs and wonders to confirm that this is true. This is the Holy Spirit's witness to the, to the people. But the writer is saying, you're in danger. You are neglecting this. And if you continue to neglect this, you're in big trouble. And he speaks of that trouble in Hebrews chapter 6. A verse and passage that has troubled many people, but it doesn't need to be. I believe this is addressed to specifically those people who were not converted. This is not for believers. The language he uses in Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 are never used anywhere else pertaining to a believer. If you want more information about this, we have CDs available in which I go into more detail of this, but let me just highlight this. Verse 4. Remember, these are the people who had neglected so great a salvation. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, enlightened by whom? By the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about something less than salvation. They've had exposure 
They've had the witness and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I think that means they, they saw the miracles. They saw kingdom demonstrations. And then, he means after all of this, you've been enlightened, you've, you've seen the evidence, and then, after all of this, have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's impossible, he says. You'll, you'll never repent. That's what Jesus said. You'll never be forgiven. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Just what Jesus said. If you're not for me, you're against me. No neutral ground. He said, if you reject him at the highest level of enlightenment and revelation, you take your stand with those who said, he's a liar, he's a sorcerer, he ought to be crucified. And you've hardened your heart just like those Pharisees. Just like those Pharisees. He said, it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. Why? Because your heart is too hard. There's nothing more God can do for you. You've rejected the evidence that he's provided to bring you to repentance and therefore you will never repent. See, if you continuously and deliberately, folks, reject God's word about Christ and the gospel, you will place yourself in danger of hardening yourself to the point of no return and then you will never have any hope of being forgiven. Now, these are very sobering words. Don't just go out of here and forget them. In fact, last week someone said to me, I I may be in this category, and I I know this person. I said, you've been spoken to a lot. You've been talked to a lot. There's really nothing more to say, is there? You've heard it all. You just need to call upon the Lord. And I say that to all of you who may be in that situation. If there is interest in your heart today, then you have not reached that point of no return. If you say, I know Christ is true, I know the gospel is right, I know I'm a sinner, I know I need to be saved, then do it today, because tomorrow your heart may be too hardened. Don't become like the Pharisees who are, as I said, in hell today, having all of eternity to think about this, because they deliberately rejected Christ. Let's bow for prayer. I realize that some of us have loved ones who we are deeply concerned about who indicate no interest in the gospel. Have they reached the point of no return? I don't know. But I do know that as long as God has placed them upon your heart, pray for them. Pray for their salvation. And God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. And understand this, when he opens doors of opportunity to witness, don't force it, but when he opens those doors, then walk through and share the gospel. With God, nothing is impossible. And we don't know where a person's heart is, so just be faithful in sharing his word. Father, we thank you for this very sobering passage of scripture. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here without Christ, that they will take this to heart. I pray for those who might be listening to this in in some other context, that they would take this to heart. And, And out of our study today, Lord, I pray that some would call upon Christ and be saved. I pray also, Lord, that for those of us who have loved ones who have no interest in the gospel, I pray that you will help us to remember to pray for them and to have confidence in you and to know that you who created the world in one week, you who can do anything can certainly change a wicked heart into a believing heart. You did that with us. So Lord, may we go out of here with great confidence in you and yet a great sense of urgency 
in proclaiming the gospel to others. We pray this all in Jesus' name. As we have heard on today's program, a person can come to a point in their life where they have so deliberately refused the Word of God and made up their minds about Christ that they can reach a point of hardness in their hearts where they will never repent and believe in Jesus. So where is that in someone's heart? We don't know, but Jesus knew, and it's clear that the Pharisees had reached that point. How did Jesus know that? Well, their evidence is very clear. They said to Jesus, you're satanic. What's sobering about that, beyond the fact they said that to the creator of the universe, is that eternity is just that, eternity. For those who reject Christ, the outcome is not pleasant, and that is extreme understatement. I hope you're able to join us for the next verse-by-verse broadcast as Pastor Steve will continue with our series, Words Have Meaning.